My name is David Grossberg, and I'd like to know, do you think the children of illegal aliens should be allowed to attend Texas public schools free, or do you think that their parents should pay for their education? Who are you addressing that to? I think you're first in this. Uh, he was looking right at you. I said he was. <laughs> Look, I'd like to see something done about the illegal alien problem that would be so sensitive and so understanding about labor needs and human needs that that problem wouldn't come up. But today, if those people are here, uh, I would reluctantly say I think they would they would get whatever it is that they're you know what the society is giving to their neighbors. But it has the problem has to be solved. The problem has to be solved because with as we have kind of made illegal sometimes a labor that I'd like to see legal. We're doing two things. We're creating a whole society of really honorable, decent, family-loving people that are in violation of the law, and secondly, we're exacerbating relations with Mexico. The, cha the, the answer to your question is much more fundamental than whether they attend Houston schools, it seems to me. I don't want to see a whole, if they're living here, I don't want to see a whole thing of six and eight-year-old kids being made, you know, one totally uneducated and made to feel that they're living with outside the law. Let's address ourselves to the fundamentals. These are good people, strong people. Part of my family is a Mexican. Can I add to that? I think the time has come that the United States and our neighbors, particularly our neighbor to the South, should have a better understanding and a better relationship than we've ever had. And I think that we haven't been sensitive enough to our size and our power. They have a problem of 40 to 50% unemployment. Now, this cannot continue without the possibility arising with regard to that other country that we talked about, of Cuba and what it is stirring up, of the possibility of trouble below the border and we could have a very hostile and strange neighbor on our border. Rather than making them, or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they go on to go back, they can go back and they can cross and open the border both ways by understanding their problems. This is the only safety valve right now they have with that unemployment that probably keeps the lid from blowing off down there. And I think we could have a, friend, a fine relationship and it would solve the problem you mentioned also. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe, a language I did not speak. Don't think, don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Save America. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, if you have it, here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. 
They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their name. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. Children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much, and may God bless America. So thank you for the, uh, for the introduction and for the uh, opportunity to speak here today. I was invited, uh, I take it because I cover edit, um, immigration for the Wall Street Journal editorial page um, where I've worked uh, for about 18 years now and, and been covering, writing Im about immigration for the paper for about uh, 10 or 11 years. Um, and as was mentioned in, in the introduction a few years ago, I wrote this book on immigration, uh, immigration reform. And at the time I wrote the book, I figured I would give, be giving speeches in, in, in places like California and New York and Arizona and other traditional gateway states uh, for immigrants, and I did. But I also found myself uh, getting invitations to speak in places with relatively small percentages of immigrants, places like Arkansas and Pennsylvania and South Carolina, Tennessee and Iowa. And one of the reasons was that while these places might not have large numbers of immigrants in absolute terms, what they did have is some of the fastest growing immigrant populations in the U.S. And I think this is causing some anxiety around the country. Uh, the foreign-born share of Iowa's population, for instance, is still very small, less than 5%, but it's up more than 130% in the past two decades. Compare that to a big state like this one, California, where the foreign-born population grew by only 22% over the same period of time. Um, so California may have 10 million immigrants, which means its uh, immigrant population is three times the size of Iowa's entire population. But that seems to matter less than the fact that these states like Iowa have been uh, growing their immigrant population so rapidly. Um, like I said, it creates a lot of anxiety, and it has allowed opportunistic politicians and talk radio hosts and cable news folks to play on people's worst fears and prejudices. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I don't think people in the media are doing a good enough job of uh, keeping things in perspective, uh, to, put it, to put it bluntly. For example, illegal border crossings peaked in the year 2000 uh, and are down by more than 70% since then. So in this past decade that we've been having this heated discussion about immigration, and illegal immigration in particular, uh, it's been falling by 70%. There's a certain disconnect there between the rhetoric and the reality. Uh, net migration from Mexico is currently zero. Uh, you'd never know that given the tone of the debate in the country today. Um, but it suggests to me that this is something of a manufactured crisis, that uh, it's not quite the, the, the crisis that it's been made, made out to be. I also wanted to uh, 
make some fact-based contributions to the debate about how immigrants impact our economy, our politics, and our culture. And the title of the book, of course, is Let Them In, The Case for Open Borders. And the case for open borders isn't a case for erasing the border or ending U.S. sovereignty or any other such nonsense. Uh, the case for open borders is simply a case for allowing the free market to decide how much foreign labor we need in this country. Uh, right now, that determination is made, by and large, by politicians and public policymakers setting arbitrary immigration quotas. And like most exercises in Soviet-style central planning, uh, it hasn't worked. It's been a disaster. Uh, it's left us with thriving markets and human smuggling and document fraud. It's left us with dead bodies in the Arizona desert. And of course, it's left us with 10, 12 million plus illegal immigrants in the United States. So I argue that our public policymakers would do better to put in place free market mechanisms, such as viable guest worker programs, that allow the law of supply and demand to determine the level of immigration. Uh, this will help reduce illegal immigration, just as it did when we used it after World War II for the Bracero program. Um, for Mexican farm workers. And for those not familiar with that program, there was a shortage of farm workers uh, following the war. And Washington put in place a program that allowed Mexican farm workers to come work here legally. Um, it lasted from about 1946 to 1964, when the unions basically shut it down because they didn't want the competition from the immigrant workers. But during that period, illegal immigration from Mexico fell by more than 80%. You give people more legal ways to come, fewer come illegally. Um, so not only would it help reduce illegal immigration, I think letting the free market and the law of supply and demand do its thing, uh, but I think it would leave us safer from a homeland security standpoint. Uh, Instead of chasing down people who come here to work for our babies and mow our lawns and otherwise get a better return on their human capital, our limited homeland security resources could be used to chase down real threats. Under the status quo, the economic migrants are running interference for the bad guys. I'd much rather our Border Patrol be focused on catching the next Boston bombers instead of harassing the woman who changed the linen at my hotel last night. Right now, they aren't focused exclusively on these real threats. Right now, they're stretched in pursuing people who come here to work. It's a very inefficient use of limited resources, and I think it makes this country less safe than we would be otherwise. My Marco Rubio impersonation. Now, my experience has been that after I make that argument, the naysayers sort of move the goalposts. Once you explained how increasing legal immigration would be an effective tool in decreasing illegal immigration, the argument shifts to why we don't need the legal immigrants either. Now, the Wall Street Journal's position on immigration is of a piece. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an argument that I happen to share, and that is that we favor free markets and free people, and that includes free and flexible labor markets. And most people, of course, who self-identify as free market conservatives uh, share this belief in freedom 
but one glaring exception in my experience seems to be when the topic turns to immigration. Um, no self-respecting free market conservative would ever dream of supporting laws that interfere with the movement of goods and services across international borders. But when it comes to laws that hamper the free movement of the workers who produce those goods and services, uh, too many conservatives today, in my view, abandon their free market principles. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is to show that there's no inconsistency in advocating for both free markets and more open immigration policies. And the subtitle of the book is Six Arguments Why Against uh, Immigration, Why They're Wrong. And I chose that subtitle because over the years I'd heard the same anti-immigrant arguments repeatedly. They steal jobs, they depress wages, they're filling our jails and prisons, they're overburdening our welfare state, and so on. Yet time and again my own reporting and research found these claims to be way overblown or simply untrue. And I'll give you a few examples. If your go-to person on immigration is Lou Dobbs, Rush Limbaugh, you might be convinced that we are in the midst of an illegal immigrant crime wave in this country. Yet the evidence does not support that claim. The evidence today doesn't support it. The evidence going back 100 years doesn't support it. Because many of the immigrants to the US, especially Mexicans and other Central Americans, are young men who arrive with very low levels of formal education, we tend to associate them with higher rates of crime and incarceration. But anecdotes can't substitute for empirical data. And the fact is that numerous studies by independent researchers and government commissions over the past century repeatedly have found that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes or be behind bars than the natives born. In fact, men between 18 and 39 who comprise the vast majority of the prison population, for them, uh, the incarceration rate of natives is five times higher than that than the incarceration rate for immigrants, five times higher. And this is not because law-abiding model immigrants from India and China are compensating for crimes from uh, undereducated, low-skilled Latino immigrants. This holds true for every ethnic group without exception. Incarceration rates are lowest for immigrants. Mexicans, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, who make up most of the illegal population in this country. It holds true for them as well. Between 1994 and 2005, the illegal immigrant population of the US is estimated to have doubled to around 12 million. Yet, according to the Department of Justice, over that same period, violent crime in the US fell by a third. Crimes against property fell by 26%. Crime fell in cities with the largest immigrant populations, like New York in LA, in Chicago, in Miami. It also fell in border states with large populations of illegal immigrants, such as San Diego and El Paso. The bottom line is that the problem of crime in the US is not caused or even aggravated by immigrants, regardless of their legal status. But you would never know that listening to some conservatives discuss the subject today. Another widely held belief is that illegal immigrants are stealing jobs from Americans. Again, where is the evidence? Where is the data? to support this claim. We had more illegal immigrant immigration, much more, under Bill Clinton and George W. Bush than we've had under Obama, who has set deportation records. 
yet we have much higher unemployment today than we had under Bill Clinton or George W. Bush. In fact, and I don't want to suggest that there's a causal relationship here, but studies of U.S. unemployment over the entire 20th century have shown that periods of high immigration have correlated with periods of low unemployment in the U.S. That has been consistently true over more than 100 years of U.S. history. A 100 years that included our highest levels of immigration to America, the early part of the 20th century. One of the reasons for that, as an aside, why immigrants, even illegal immigrants, don't tend to displace U.S. workers is because of the type of people who come here. We're not importing replicas of ourselves. The immigrants who come tend to be either higher skilled or lower skilled than the average American, higher educated or lower educated than the average American. They tend to compete for jobs with one another, not with U.S. natives. That is one of the reasons that uh, the unemployment rate um, is not typically affected by uh, the level of immigration to the U.S. If we were importing replicas of ourselves, it might be a different story, but that is not who tends to come to this country. Another widely held belief is that the rate of Mexican immigration is unprecedented. This, too, is false. Not only is the rate not unprecedented, it isn't even high by historical standards. During the peak years of Mexican immigration in the late 1990s, the U.S. was receiving 1.5 immigrants, legal and illegal, from Mexico each year. 1.5 immigrants per 1,000 U.S. citizens. By contrast, in the middle of the 19th century, the U.S. absorbed an average of 3.6 Irish immigrants per 1,000 U.S. residents annually, or more than double the rate of Mexican immigration at its peak. This holds true for other past immigrant groups as well. From 1840 uh, to 1890, the rate of German immigration was greater in every decade than the current flow of Mexicans. From 1901 to 1910, Italian, Russian, Austro-Hungarian immigration each surpassed the current rate of Mexican immigration. I want to spend the balance of my time talking about assimilation because, as I said at the outset, I think that's the source of a lot of the anxiety we see today and because many social conservatives in particular question whether America is capable of assimilating this latest wave of Latin Americans whether, uh, and whether, in fact, we are doing so. And I'm going to use the Irish immigrant experience as a historical comparison to today's Latinos uh, because, uh, one, there's a lot of similarities, I think, in their stories. And frankly, I've come to believe that if America could assimilate 19th century Irish immigrants, we can probably assimilate anybody. And when your last name is Riley, you can make jokes like that, um, which is also a joke, obviously. Um, we've all heard the stories about no Irish need apply signs in store windows and the like. But I'd like to give you a slightly more vivid portrait of Irish immigration in the 1800s. And it comes from an excellent book by Tom Sowell called Ethnic America. A French traveler in the 1830s returned from a trip that included America and Ireland. And he wrote the following. 
I have seen the Indian in his forest and the Negro in his chains and thought, as I contemplated their pitiable condition, that I saw the very extreme of human wretchedness. But I did not then know the condition of unfortunate Ireland. Now, this was not an exaggeration on the part of this writer. Slaves in the U.S. had higher life expectancy than the Irish peasants who immigrated here. Slaves also ate better and lived in cabins built with sturdier materials and better ventilation. Like other early immigrant groups, the Irish came over in the holds of cargo ships, which were built with little regard for the needs of actual passengers. There were no toilet facilities, for instance, so filth and odor and disease were common. In 1847, about 20% of Irish immigrants fleeing the potato famine died en route to the U.S. or shortly after they arrived here. By comparison, the loss of life of slaves traveling on British vessels in the 19th century averaged about 9%. Why was the Irish death rate more than double that of slaves? Simple. It was economics. Those slaves were property. Someone had a stake in keeping them alive. No one cared what happened to these Irish immigrants. It's also worth noting that the Irish were coming from a country that was more than 80% rural, yet they were settling in cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia. And they met resistance from those who said, America has no use for this unskilled labor. The argument was that we were in the middle of an industrial revolution. The future was factories, not farms, and the Irish would never assimilate to an urban capitalist society. Of course, the naysayers were wrong. The Irish did, the U.S. did have a need for this unskilled labor. And this increase in workers did not go to waste. Supply created its own demand. Another thing that conservatives believe in when they're not discussing immigration. The Irish did jobs that were considered lowly or dangerous, too lowly or dangerous for natives, even for slaves, who again, were considered too valuable. They built roads and canals and railroads. They worked in mines. When Frederick Law Olmsted, the famous designer of New York City Central Park, once inquired about the division of labor between slaves and Irish workers on a riverboat in Alabama, he was told, quote, the niggers are worth too much to be risked here. If the patties are knocked overboard and get their backs broke, nobody loses anything. The phrase, jobs Americans won't do, has taken on a negative connotation today, as if it's an insult to Americans or the Protestant work ethic. This is nonsense. Throughout history, immigrants all over the world have performed jobs that the natives spurned, whether it was Indians in South Africa, Italians in Argentina, Turks in Germany. Not only did the Irish do jobs that were considered beneath Americans, they did jobs that were considered beneath American slaves. Irish women typically worked as domestic servants. Now, what do I mean by typically? In 1855, 99% of all domestic servants in New York City were Irish women. As late as 1920, 80% of all Irish women working in America were domestic servants. That's a snapshot of where the Irish started. Now, let me give you a snapshot of where they ended up. The Irish did assimilate, of course. They produced writers and painters and presidents. They produced doctors and lawyers and school teachers. They produced civic leaders and businessmen, including Henry Ford, whose father fled the potato 
famine in Ireland and who would go on to revolutionize transportation in America. And according to the latest census figures, the educational achievement and household income of Irish Americans exceeds the national average. Apparently, the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of all those hardworking Irish immigrants who would never amount to anything turned out okay. And though the Irish experience has been replicated by other large immigrant groups from Europe and Asia, this history is often ignored or played down when we discuss Latino immigration today. I think the opposite should be the case. The next time you hear someone say that Mexicans lack the skills to make it in our advanced economy, that they start off way too far down the socioeconomic ladder to ever make it here, that they will forever be stuck doing menial jobs that we don't need done anyway. Try and remember the Irish experience. It's also sometimes argued that Latinos hang on to their native Spanish and that this is proof that they aren't assimilating. We're told that past immigrant groups quickly adopted English and that the prevalence of Spanish-speaking Latinos today is a situation that America has just never faced before. We're told that Hispanics cordon themselves off in, in barrios with their own stores and restaurants in an attempt to preserve their culture instead of adopting ours. Well, this argument is nothing new. And it's no more valid today than it was when Benjamin Franklin made it 250 years ago. Franklin complained that the German immigrants, who he called the most stupid of their nation, were too plentiful in this country. In 1751, he wrote, why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us instead of us anglifying them, and who will never adopt our language and customs. Franklin was one of the most enlightened men of his day, yet on immigration he sounds like Pat Buchanan or Lou Dobbs or some conspiracy theorist. And the reason is that he was living in the middle of a wave of German immigration. In Franklin's day, 18th century America, it was possible to travel from Pennsylvania to Georgia and speak only German. The Germans had preserved their language and culture in socially enclosed enclaves, strung along hundreds of miles through the Cumberland Valley, the Shenandoah Valley, and the Carolinas. Historians report that even into the 19th century, German immigrants lived largely to themselves in German-speaking communities with numerous German-language newspapers and periodicals and with their own special foods and drinks and social organizations. During the Civil War, there were all German units in the Union Army with their commands being given in German. Again, the point I'm making here is that today's immigrants from Latin America aren't really any different in terms of behavior patterns. They're just newer. America has been through all of this before. With each new wave, there's a fear that the country is being overwhelmed, that the latest immigrant group will change America more than America changes the immigrants. Of course, the Germans clearly influenced our culture. They gave us kindergarten and marching bands and Christmas trees, among other things. And I'm sure some people here today have German ancestry, but I doubt many of you speak fluent German. Let me give one last example of an argument used today to paint Latino immigrants as somehow unique. It's said that Latino immigrants are unique because of their proximity to their homeland. 
that many come just to make money and then go back home. That many aren't interested in laying down roots and becoming American. By contrast, we're told thousands of miles of ocean separated prior immigrant groups from their homeland. So when they came, they came to stay and were committed to becoming American. Well, that's not what the record shows. Italian immigrants started coming in substantial numbers in the late 1880s. Like the Irish, the vast majority were desperately poor, illiterate, and had no skills of seeming value to America's industrial economy. Italians were said to have an aversion to formal education. Italy had one of the highest illiteracy rates in all of Europe, and it was particularly high in southern Italy, which is where most Italian-Americans traced their ancestry. In New York, Italian labor helped build the subway system, but they were also employed as what were called rag pickers in the city dumps, and their job was to go through the city's garbage and find salvageable items. In 1910, Italian men earned less annually than either white or black men in America. Italian immigrants to the U.S. and elsewhere also had a habit of returning home after a period. This was planned from the outset. Travel abroad, make some money, and go back home. If you run out of money, go abroad and work some more. In the immigration literature, these temporary migrants are known as sojourners. And Italian sojourners pop up all over the world. Between 1876 and 1976, Around 26 million people left Italy and headed to Western Europe or the Americas. Around 8.5 million of them, or about a third, eventually returned home. About 5 million immigrants came to the U.S. between 1880 and 1930. Of these, 2 million returned to Italy. And Italians weren't the only sojourners. 46% of Hungarians went back. 36% of Slovenians. 48% of the French. 46% of the Greeks. There's a whole book about this written by a man named Mark Wyman. It's called Round Trip to America. The immigrants returned to Europe. Something like one-third of European newcomers returned home in the period leading up to World War I. Why is none of this ever discussed when people complain about Latino immigrants who want to work here for a period and then go back home? You'd think no one ever done it before. And by the way, there may not be an ocean between the U.S. and Latin America, but many Latino immigrants are, in fact, traveling thousands of miles to reach their U.S. destination. We know their migration patterns thanks to the remittances they send back home while they're here. And those remittances show that they don't come from just across the border, which is a relatively unpopulated region. The Latino immigrants you find in Omaha, in Chicago, in Seattle, for example, typically hail from the rural Mexican state of Michoacan, which is about more than 1,500 miles from Chicago and some 2,000 miles from Seattle. Mexican immigrants in Boston tend to come from the Mexican state of Jalisco, which is well over 1,000 miles away. And those in New York often come from Puebla, a state that is more than 2,000 miles away from New York. Let's just say these immigrants aren't popping back home for weekend visits. Now, my purpose in bringing up these historical comparisons is not to argue over who had the worst experience. The point is to show that the, immigrants, that the arguments against Mexican immigration today are old arguments that have been used repeatedly against previous groups. Mexicans aren't facing anything new. And history tells us that the obstacles they do face are not insurmountable. 
And I want to close with a few words about the uniqueness and success of the American assimilation model. I open the book with a quote from Ronald Reagan from a speech he gave in China back in 1984. And he said, America is really many Americas. We call ourselves a nation of immigrants, and that's what we truly are. We have drawn people from every corner of the earth. We're composed of virtually every race and religion, and not in small numbers, but large. We have a statue in New York Harbor that speaks of this, a statue of a woman holding a torch of welcome to those who enter our country to become Americans. She has greeted millions upon millions of immigrants to our country. She welcomes them still. She represents our open door. All of the immigrants who came to us brought their own music, literature, customs, and ideas. And the marvelous thing, a thing of which we're proud, is that they did not have to relinquish these things in order to fit in. What they brought to America became American. And this diversity has more than enriched us. It has literally shaped us. I think Reagan articulated the uniqueness of the US assimilation model. In America, assimilation is less about immigrants adopting our culture than about immigrants adopting our values. And America has been uniquely successful in this regard, particularly in comparison to places like Europe or even Canada, which has language issues. It's French. If America, or if American culture is under assault today, it's not from too many immigrants who aren't assimilating, but from modern elites who reject the concept of assimilation. For multiculturalists, particularly those in the academy, assimilation is a dirty word that elicits not just indifference, but outright hostility. Some don't want to judge one culture as superior or inferior to another. They espouse a kind of values-neutral belief system. If some societies believe in genital mutilation or keeping women undereducated or covered in a burqa, who are we to judge? Other multicultural advocates reject the assimilation paradigm outright on the grounds that the US hasn't already always lived up to its stated ideals. Americans slaughtered Indians and enslaved blacks, goes this argument. And this wicked history means that we have no right to impose a value system. But the people who want to seal the border in response to this sort of thinking are directing their wrath at the wrong people. The problem isn't the immigrants, it's the multiculturalists who want to turn America into a loose federation of ethnic groups. People are right to complain about bilingual education advocacy, anti-American Chicano studies professors, Spanish language ballots, ethnically gerrymandered voting districts, and so forth. But these problems weren't created by the woman changing linen at your hotel. I say keep the immigrants, deport the Harvard faculty. <laughs> For all the loud talk of late uh, in America, I think the public seems not to have lost confidence in the melting pot. If it had, we'd know it. There would be English-only signs everywhere militarized border zones. There would be ubiquitous police checkpoints, far-right political parties like France's National Front. We don't have that here, not yet. 
Of course, there is some bigotry and stupidity out there, which we'll always have. But when people can't really live another day with other kinds of people, they don't send emails to Bill O'Reilly. They engage in ethnic cleansing. You get Serbs and Croats in the Balkans. You get Hindus and Muslims in India. You get Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. What we have in America is a sort of periodic grumpiness about the most recent arrivals. A vague and ambivalent disdain that doesn't settle in too deeply to the psyche. I think most Americans still believe that our assimilationist model is working. There was a saying among the workers at Ellis Island. It went like this. The cowards never came, and the weak died on the way. And what a saying like that says to me is that America is not simply a nation of people with ancestors from other places. We're a nation of hardworking, upwardly mobile immigrant drivers. Today's immigrants aren't any different. They're just newer. I'll leave it there. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. History in the making, 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 history in the making. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.